Alright, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey and I'm your host. On the agenda this evening, UFC 273 last night. The good, the bad, the otherwise. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of it. Then a preview for this upcoming week's episode. It's a little light. But you've got a relevant main event, uh, a rematch between Vicente Luque and Bilal Muhammad. It's not going to crown the next title challenger, but whoever wins that is going to be in a prime position. They're going to be a little bit undersold, but they're going to be in the pri- they're going to be in a very good position. And some of the news of the week, such as it was, I would get another relatively slow news week, all things considered. A lot of mostly stuff in the vein of fight announcements, so we'll go through some of that. All right, before I get going, please do interact with the product. My usual spiel here. Like, comment, subscribe. Uh, if, it all, if any of that is at all relevant, a star rating, if applicable, written reviews, any and all of that is always, always helpful. Thank you all very, very much for that, for the support that you continue to show the show. Not going to spend too much longer, uh, any more time on that, but it's one of those things. You have to do it. Nobody likes it. I know I listen to enough podcasts and whatnot. I don't like it, but you kind of have to do it. <laughs> it's just it, everyone does it because it works, more or less. All right, let's get on to the action. We can get into things pretty quickly here. Last night, UFC 273. Uh, let's start with the main event. <laughs> that main event, man. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, to the surprise of no one, Defeats Chan Sung Jung to retain the featherweight title. He did so via TKO punches, 45 seconds of the fourth round. This this was not close. Let me start with that. Uh, this was very, very not close. Volkanovski just effortlessly, it seemed like. The first two rounds just timed... Jung very quickly, jabs, leg kicks, inside leg kicks, started getting a read with his right hand just over and over again. Was able to hit him and not get hit. Uh, Jung just did not at any point have an answer. It got a little bit worse in the <laughs> in the second round. I mean, let me, the stats on this thing are pretty nuts. Uh go round by round. Uh, we're looking at totals. Yeah, Volkanovski had a very high percentage. He was consistently landing uh, north of 60% of his strikes. Anytime you're over, anytime you are over 50, you're doing real good. When you get north of 60. I mean, understand, from a statistical standpoint, just being over 50% means you should land more, means you're going to land more than you miss. It goes from, uh, I mean, if you play poker, for example, you know, the, the difference between a 55% to win and a 45% to win, sometimes if you go head-to-head, head, you get those. The reality is the 55% guys should win. Now, it doesn't always play out like that because there's still a 45% chance you're going to lose, which is not trivial. But you you cross that threshold from should lose to should win, or in this case from should miss to should hit. That makes a big deal. 
makes a really big deal. Uh, officially, and I might even think this is a slightly generous count for what uh, Jung landed, the official significant strike totals at the end of the day, uh, Volkanovsky 138 of 213, 64% landing, uh, versus for Jung landing 48 of 125. And again, that might be a slightly generous count on 48. Uh, I mean, Volkanovsky landed nearly 100 more strikes. That's, a, that's an absurd level of dominance there. And if you go total, it actually doesn't get much... It actually gets worse for Jung if we go total. Uh, total strikes Volkanovsky was 152 to just 51 for Jung. Uh, just a thorough, thorough domination. Uh, yeah, again, it got worse in the second. You know, Jung landed just 10 strikes in the second round. Uh... The third round is where Jung started. Jung found more success. He still got completely blown out. Uh, he landed more in that round because Volkanovsky started engaging with him for slightly longer periods of time. He had got enough of a beat on him to start ramping things up. And when he started ramping things up, you know, Jung, by the nature of who he is as a fighter, was able to find a bit more success, but it was still a an absolute blowout. I mean, Volkanovski landed 60 total strikes, 57 of them deemed significant. You know, Jung landed 23. You're more than double the output. Like, if I'm hitting you more than twice as often as you're hitting me, I will take that every single time. Uh, then, I mean... The, the first two rounds were borderline 10 eights. The third was. I, I haven't seen the official scorecards for this one, uh, but that third round should have... If you didn't give that one a 10 eight, I don't know what to tell you. It was just... Uh, I mean, not only was he battering him, he upped the intensity, he wobbled him more than once, he dropped him at one point. Uh, the end of the third round... I mean... At the end of the second round, Jung went back to his corner and didn't even sit on the stool. He just sat on the ground. I mean, <laughs> it was just a terrible, terrible tell on where a fighter is uh, physically and mentally. At the end of the third round, I mean, even the commentary team, uh, Paul Felder, I think, said it first. He said, he said it pretty much as soon as the round ended, you know, I'm not sure they should let him come back out. His face was busted up. He'd been beaten on the feet. He'd been out-wrestled. I do want to give him credit, though. Uh, one of the things that Jung, I think, really benefited, he's, he did some training for this one with uh, uh, Henry Cejudo's team. What are they, fight ready? And his takedown defense was... Uh, it was at 50%, uh, officially, if you look at the statistics. Uh that's still pretty good for against a wrestler of Volkanovski's caliber. And if you look at what he was doing technically, it was just a lot better than he's been in the past about that. So I, I do think he deserves credit for that. But he still was getting out-wrestled. And just his leg was getting chewed up. It was just, there was not a whole lot. And so again, credit to Paul Felder and you know, Rogan and Anik both agreeing with him. 
I don't I don't know what the purpose is here. Jung uh, decided he wanted to come out for the fourth. I mean, Herb Dean, who was the referee for this, credit to him in this case, he knew that that fight should be stopped. Uh, Jung's corner wasn't going to do it because MMA corners don't do this. He got the doctor to take a look at Jung between rounds, and that doctor did the most useless thing ever. Looked at him and went, do you want to fight? I know that being a, a ringside physician for combat sports is a difficult thing to do. You're trying to make medical assessments frequently when your opponent, when you're not opponent, sorry, when the, the guy you're trying to assess is actively lying to you. You know, Can you see out of this eye? Yes, sir, I can see. How many fingers are you holding up? I'm going to take a guess. And if they happen to guess right, what are you going to do? Like they're... They want to, most fighters want to fight, and they will lie to the doctor about that. Uh, so, I get that it's difficult, is kind of the story there. But if all you do as the doctor is come in, look at the guy, and go, do you want to fight? I mean, you've seen this guy absorb, where are we at after the third round? 140 strikes, give or take? Yeah, something like that. Like you've seen this guy get hit 140 times, most of that to the head. Yeah, 73% of that to the head if we go by uh, by the measurements here, which is kind of normal for Volkanovski. He does a lot of leg kicks, a lot of head work, and a little bit to the body, but not a whole lot. Uh, and the only thing you ask him is what his desire is? That's, that's such a useless... That, that was just such a useless bit of examination. This is what we saw on the broadcast. Uh, Volkanovski comes out for the fourth round. They touch gloves, and he looks at uh, Jung and goes, Are you sure? Jung, you know, puts his hands up, so they keep fighting. It, again, less than a minute later. Uh, Volkanovski, I mean, Volkanovski hits him with a right fairly quickly. Hits him with another couple that sent him staggering backwards. He doesn't go down, but the you know, the referee at that point just grabs Volkanovski. Like, enough. Enough. Uh, this was a... Uh, I mean... You can't say it was totally flawless, because totally flawless is I punch you once, you fall over, you never even touch me. But when you look at, you know... The total strikes absorbed he landed for this, again, 51 total, which might even, again, I'd have to rewatch it and really take a look at it, but that might be a slightly generous. Uh, and even then, how much that was to the head? Yeah, Jung wound up landing to the, to the chest area more than the head. In fact, he should have started doing that earlier, but uh, that's a technical observation. I mean, this was a flawless performance. Like this was, I think one of the commentators, I forget if it was Rogan or uh, or Felder, he said this was a seminar. Like <laughs> that's what it felt like. This was, that's what this was. This was just Volkanovski in every single phase of the game being an insurmountable distance ahead of Chan Sung Jung. Uh, it's rare in MMA that you see this. Uh, you see this more, especially in boxing. Uh, and there's a reason for this. Boxing is a very... And I don't mean this as an insult, mind you. I love boxing, believe it or not. 
boxing is a very narrow discipline. You are limited in your targets. You can only hit above the waist. You can only hit the front of the body. You're limited in your weapons, and you're limited in elements of your application to them. You can, Not only are you only punching, a pretty specific definition of punching. Uh, so when someone is the better boxer, it becomes very apparent very quickly. And it, it, it manifests itself... Because there's so there's so little you can do differently. If, if you're on the losing end of things, you've got there's a finite number of ways, and a really small, and it's a real finite number of ways you can change the tide. Things, and let me be clear when I say that that doesn't mean oh no you lost a round you lost one round you're going to lose the fight. That's that's an overly simplistic uh, reaction to what I'm saying. I'm saying it if you watch enough boxing you start to really see which got you know, you can start to pick up on this. If someone doesn't have the skill their heart becomes irrelevant. Uh now most guys even when they're on the losing end of things you can see where they you can see where parts where they go even or they don't lose by they tend not to get completely blown out. And then the good fighters simply build on those successes. Uh, if you want an example of this, the uh, Gennady Golovkin fight when he beat Ryoto Murata is a good example of this. It takes Triple G a while to get going, but once he does, it starts building and building and building. And, and it's very evident because, again, what you have to work with is so narrow. That's why everything has to be so refined. It's part of the beauty of boxing. It's not quite the same in MMA because your tools are so varied. Someone can lose badly in the striking department, but maybe they're really good in the clinch. So once they get things in there, the tide shifts. Maybe they're a really good wrestler. Maybe they've got lights out submission defense or submission offense or or defense for that matter. To be if you're almost impossible to submit, that can really complicate the other guy's strategy. But there's there's just a lot of different angle uh, angles, yeah. There's a lot of different ways you can do this, and it's one of the reasons I. Th- it's part of the reason, not the only reason, but it's a contributing factor to corners not being willing to throw in the towel. I think, because in again in boxing, what are you gonna do? Okay, maybe you're losing at distance. Maybe we can get on the inside a little bit more. Guy's got better hand speed, but you're starting to get his timing. There, there can be a bit of give and take there, but when you're just overmatched and it's obvious, there's not really a point to someone taking more abuse. In MMA, there tends to be a bit more of the, again, there's a lot of reasons MMA corners don't stop fights. But I think we'd be remiss not to uh, include amongst these considerations that there you can change the entire complexion of a fight, not with one punch, but by using a different strategy, by changing the terms of engagement in ways that you cannot in other sports. And it, that's, which is all to say that none of that was in play here. <laughs> it's kind of the long and the short of that. It's rare in mixed martial arts where you find someone this outmatched at every possible level it 
Okay, we all knew Volkanovski was the better technical striker. Alright, fair enough. But Jung couldn't induce a brawl, which is a skill in and of itself, and would have given him a better shot. Jung couldn't fight more effectively in the pocket or in boxing range as opposed to kicking range. Jung couldn't find success in the clinch. He couldn't take Volkanovski down. He was only 50% successful at stopping Volkanovski from taking him down. Like, there's no area, there's no singular facet of the sport where Jung had an advantage. And it is very rare you see that in the UFC. It's very rare you see that at the title level. You can usually, even when you get the occasional mismatch for the belt, which happens, you can usually find an angle. You can find something. Here's something Fighter X does better than Fighter Y. If these circumstances occur, then the champion's in trouble. You know, what happens? I mean, you can take even the most dominant champions, and this becomes true of them. It's harder, especially for the very well-rounded ones, but it happens. Uh, and this, there was just none of that here. Like, Volkanovski was the biggest favorite on the card. He was minus 7-something. Minus 700, so over 7-1 to one to win. And he made that look like it was underselling him when it was all said and done. This was not close. I mean, I said last week that I think if you go skill for skill, Volkanovski's the best fighter in the UFC. Maybe in all of MMA. And I stand by that. Uh, you can look at the other guys who should maybe in be, who are maybe in the discussion for pound for pound. You've got Usman. I think Usman has a better body of work if we're looking at resumes than Volkanovski does. He's had a longer title reign. He's got a longer unbeaten streak for whatever you want. For a longer uh, winning streak in the UFC. I mean, Volkanovski's overall winning streak is 21 fights. He has never lost at featherweight. He's never lost at lightweight. His only loss was when he fought a welterweight. And that video circulated a bit online um, uh, last week? Uh, a week or two weeks ago. It, it kind of made the rounds. The size difference there is comical, and the crazy thing is, I imagine if they fought again, even at welterweight today, Volkanovski would school him. Uh, but if you so if you're considering more body of work then I can see the argument for Usman ahead of Volkanovski. If we're considering skills, like if we just go skill for skill, I, I'm i going to reiterate, I think Volkanovski's better. He's, I think he's a better... He's a more dynamic wrestler. Let me phrase that very, very carefully. Usman's wrestling is a little bit inhibited by some of his knee issues, which he's been very open about. But that's why his takedowns tend to come from the clinch instead of uh, dropping levels and shooting for a double. He's still very, very, very good. I'm not meaning to imply otherwise, but I think Volkanovski has a bit more dynamism there. If we're talking striking, Usman hits harder, yes. But rewatch some of the striking exchanges that Usman has gotten into, even under Trevor Whitman, who's done, a, who's done wonders for his technique. He still gets sloppy. Volkanovski never gets sloppy. Volkanovski's movement is better. His fake, his uh, his fake and faint game is better. Uh, 
I think Volkanovski has better ground and pound. Usman's not big on ground and pound. Um, he's more... He does more control. It's not that he never hits you, but he's more concerned about control. Which is a, just a tactical assessment. That's not good, bad, or otherwise. But I, I think Volkanovski might start getting some... Start, finally start getting some votes as the guy at the top of the heap. Uh, as for what's next for him, one imagines they're going to rebook him and Max. I think it was Aaron Bronstetter I saw tweet this. That, like, the difference between Alexander Volk... Like, the, the top of featherweight, you've got Volkanovski and Holloway. And the gulf between those two and the rest of the featherweight division... It feels enormous, doesn't it? I mean, Max beat the crap out of Calvin Cater. He's a very good fighter. He beat Yair Rodriguez, and what I, I, th I will maintain is Yair's probably most complete MMA performance. He's not just meme-kicking the whole time. Uh, still, Vol Holloway beat him, no real questions asked. More competitive than I thought it was going to be, certainly. And Yair's had moments. But there was no doubt about who won that fight. Absolutely none. Who else is there? Get the rankings real fast. Quick look at that. Uh, I mean, if we go down the list real quickly here, you have champion Volkanovski, then Holloway at number one. So, Brian Ortega... Beaten, battered, and bloodied by both Holloway and Volkanovski. Yair Rodriguez couldn't get by Holloway. Chan Sung Jung just got beaten by Volkanovski almost comically. Calvin Cater's at number five. Holloway beat the crap out of him. Arnold Allen and Josh Emmett are coming in at six and seven, respectively. Those two might be... There's some potential there. Um, Allen just needs to stay active. He's a very, very good fighter. Uh, Emmett, kind of the same thing. You know, Emmett uh, gets overlooked a lot because his game is very, uh, very kind of meh. I mean, he's got power, but a lot of what he does is very, uh, very basic, very fundamental, very, very uh, team alpha male, circa 10, 12 years ago, and it, he makes it work for him, and God bless him. Uh, Giga Chikadze just had the setback uh, when he fought Cater. Bryce Mitchell sitting at number nine. Um, so, but we have to get like out of the top five to get away from people that have lost to those two. And realistically, would you favor Arnold Allen over either Volkanovski or Holloway? I'm not sure I'd favor him over Ortega, to be candid. Uh, now... I'm not trying to push those guys ahead, you know, to the front of the line necessarily. Mitchell could be due, and Mitchell is due a bigger fight. Uh, he just had the win over Edson Barboza, so he's due somebody nearer the top. Allen just had a really good outing. Uh, he stopped Dan Hooker, so he's going to be due a pretty big one. So you've got a few guys who are coming up, but. For what, the next year or so, is there anyone on that list that you look at and go, boy, they'd give Max Holloway a run for his money? That guy poses a serious threat to Alexander Volkanovsky. I don't see it. Uh, frankly, 
if they make the third fight between Volkanovski and Holloway, which I imagine they will, I mean, this was supposed to be this fight, and then uh, that fell apart for weird reasons. Uh, if they make that third fight, uh, Volkanovski, Holloway might be slowing down a little bit. I mean... He went to war with Yair Rodriguez in some respects when he probably did not need to. And Volkanovski's getting better. Now that's that. Uh, as for Jung, uh, I think I broke my heart. Uh, listening to, uh, seeing some of the rea his reaction to losing was just... MMA is a cruel, cruel sport because most of the time... There is only the truth at the end of it. Uh, one of the things he said, and this did not go translated by his official translator, but a lot of people said it, uh, brought it up on Twitter. He said that now he knows he can't be UFC champion. Uh, which is, again, that's a brutal thing to realize. I mean, he fought Jose Aldo for the belt. Oh... Man, how long ago was that? Eight years? I'd say it was 16, wasn't it? Might have been, or was it 13? Ah, should you know this? Hang on, I will find out. Uh, yeah, 13, God. August of 2013. And he fought his way back to a title opportunity. And... He had absolutely nothing to offer Volkanovski, and that's a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. So I don't know what he's going to do next. Uh, I don't know if he'll retire or not. He might just reassess his goals and decide he still wants to do this, but uh, he got... Jose, Al Jose Aldo did not beat him that badly. Uh Brian Ortega, and he lost to Ortega, um, but, you know, Yair Rodriguez, who knocked him out, did not beat him this badly. This is probably the worst loss of his career, maybe dating all the way back to when George Roop head-kicked him at a WEC event. Like, we gotta go way back to find a loss that is somewhat comparable to this one. So I don't know what's next for him. I mean, I have a lot of uh, affection for the Korean zombie, but... He was outgunned everywhere. All right, co-main event. Did not agree with the decision here. Aljamain Sterling defeats Piotr Jan via split decision. 48-47, so one of those for Jan, two of those for Sterling. I don't agree, but I am not up in arms. Here's the problem. Here's the thing about this fight. Everything about it comes down to one round. And that round in particular could legitimately go either way. So, that was the first round. Let's move beyond that for just a second. Round two, things are mostly going okay for Jan. Then Sterling forces him to... Aljamain Sterling has such a weird game. He just... His wrestling... I don't mean to say his wrestling is bad, because that's a that would be a wild miscategorization. It's good. It's very good. But it's predicated, especially in this fight. He did not really try to get 
Piotr Jan down in the traditional sense. He was trying to force a scramble where he could jump on the back because Aljamain... If Aljamain Sterling is top of the heap, maybe in all of MMA and a couple of things, his back taking is maybe the best in the sport. It is that good. And he tried uh, single leg switching into high crotches a couple of times and... When Jan was defending, he would wind up turning his back without proper control of the head. Or he'd get off balance, not knocked over, but he'd kind of half turn trying to keep his footing, and Sterling just kind of jumped on his back. Uh, and once Aljamain Sterling is on your back, man, getting him off of there is a nearly impossible task. Jan couldn't do it. He could not dislodge him. So Sterling wins the second round. Some arguments were floated online for a 10-8. I saw a couple of uh, I saw some of the media members do do so, and I understand the argument, but I don't agree on rewatch. I don't think that Stirl uh, that Sterling did enough under the criteria we're using. We're using the newer criteria. I don't think he did enough with the position to have warranted a 10-8. Now again. Doing that live, I kind of thought, yeah, maybe that's a 10-8. Rewatch, no. It's a very, very, very obvious 10-9. And again, it's not that I'm not sympathetic to the 10-8 argument, but I, again, you rewatch it and it doesn't meet the criteria. Second round, more of the same. Uh, and the second round was actually a little bit worse, I think. Because um, the second round, yeah, uh, no, it was about the same. I mean, in those first, in the second and third rounds, like Sterling had three and a half minutes of control time in the first, three minutes and forty-three seconds in the second, in the third. Like that's a lot of control time. Now he had a couple of submission attempts, but nothing really got close. He had a decent flurry. I think it was in the third. No, second. He had a good flurry in the second round. Uh, but... By the time we get to round four, Yacht, things start turning in favor of Jan. Jan starts stuffing the takedowns more effectively. Uh, he's landing more punches. Sterling's kind of struggling. Jan gets Sterling down a few times. I mean, Jan is credited with 351 of control time in the fourth. Fifth round, a lot more of that from Jan. He kind of shakes Sterling off of his back at one point. Sterling gets overzealous going for the back. Gets shaken off, and Jan just kind of beats him up. So the whole... Th the long story short there is the whole fight winds up hinging on the first round. A first round that featured Aljamain Sterling throwing a total of 41 strikes, trying two takedowns, both of which were stuffed. Jan throwing a total of 26 strikes. And if we look at their landing percentages, Jan landed 50% of his strikes, Sterling landed 47. Sterling threw not quite twice as many, but in total threw more, and technically speaking, landed more. Spent the entire round backing up from Jan's pressure. And you ultimately have to decide this round based on the smallest of margins. As an end result, what are we left with? A near coin flip round to determine the entire fight. Doing it live, I scored it for Jan. But I, I, doing it live, I did not 
I don't think I quite gave Sterling as much credit as I should have. That's on me. Rewatching it. This I did rewatch this one, especially this round, because I really wanted to make sure I had my arguments nailed down for this. I still give it to Jan, for the record, even on rewatch. Rewatch made it much clearer how close that was. And, again, if you give this to Sterling, I'm not arguing with you. I might have gone a slightly different way, but by the time... By the time we're arguing what we're arguing when discussing this round, we've entered an entire area of the judging criteria that is inherently subjective. And it sucks for Jan, but this is nothing but the result of how he chose to fight. Jan tends to kind of give away the first round. Uh, he uses, which is not to say he doesn't use it. But that round is not... He doesn't usually win that round. And it came back to bite him here. If he'd been more authoritative in that round, he wins. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, the fight itself was a little bit odd. You know, Sterling did a pretty good job in the first round of using his kicks. A uh, fair number of body kicks. You know, one of the weird things... Jan, if we look at his uh, targeting, was 50% to the head, 26% to the body, 22% to the legs. He got away from the leg kicks um, a little bit prematurely, I think. And they didn't quite seem to be having the same effect. Uh, Sterling's movement hindered that a lot. But that was one of the things he used to really kind of punish Sterling in the first fight that he couldn't use here. Jan was, um, he was overswinging a lot. He came out a little bit hot, uh, which is weird considering I said he just kind of gave the round away, but this is about methodology, not, uh, not end results. He did not do his usual more kind of measured approach in that first round. He was, uh, he was looking to take Sterling's head off, and I think that cost him a fair bit. Uh, Sterling's cardio held up in no small part because he did not fight like he was shot out of a cannon. Uh, it also helps that, I mean, look, if you get two rounds where you spend almost four minutes on the guy's back, that just takes less energy. It, it's not a, you're not resting there, obviously, but it's not nearly as physically difficult as some of the other stuff you were, you could be doing. I mean, Sterling's takedown efficiency overall was still poor. Like, he got 2 of 22. Turns out those two were enough to win the fight. But, if, I mean, if we look at his takedowns, 0 for 2 in the first, 1 of 2 in the second, 1 of 4 in the third, 0 for 4 in the fourth, and then 0 for 10 in the fifth. I mean, that's, that's a lot of energy he started expending down the stretch. Uh, you know, credit to him. His movement never fell off. He was able to... You know, again, bank enough rounds to win the fight, and that's a perfectly valid way to win. Uh, after the fight, he said uh, Sterling said he wants to fight T.J. Dillashaw, which is the darkest timeline. Other people are probably going to be more interested in that fight than I am. I could not possibly care less about those two fighting each other. Uh, that's a... Put it like this. 
if Dillashaw is still operating at a high enough le- at a high level relative to what he has shown in the past, that's a rough fight for Aljamain Sterling. Getting TJ Dillashaw down is a very difficult proposition. Dealing with a guy with his output is very difficult. He's got heavy hands. He's a very good wrestler himself. Dillashaw, of course, I thought Dillashaw lost the fight with Corey Sandhagen. I've been open about that. Uh, But if he's slowed down as much as you kind of think he has, that's, I might favor Sterling there, but that's a, that's not an easy fight. After, uh, as far as Jan goes after the fight, he said he wanted a rematch. He feels he won just fine. Uh, Again, I'm. I kind of I scored it for him, so I don't think he's in the wrong there. But they're not going to do a third immediate fight between these two guys. I mean, even, look, Dana White scored the fight for Jan. He disagreed with the decision, but they're not going to do it. They're not going to do that. Uh, especially not with Dillashaw there, who the UFC really likes. What we're probably going to get is Jan. You might get Jan versus Marav Dwalish, really. Which is... That's... Marab is a deeply flawed fighter. But his sheer determination and his utterly absurd motor make up for it. I would favor Jan in that fight, but... That might be what we're kind of looking at here for... Uh, for Jan next. They're not, because they're not going to do another fight between Jan and Aldo. There's no point. They're not going to do another fight between Jan and Sandhagen. Again, there's not really a point. Rob Font is fighting Marlon Vera soon, I believe. Uh, He could fight the winner of that. And then again, you got Marab sitting at six. Uh... So, yeah, he's he's going to have to win another fight before he gets back to the belt. Uh, unfortunate for him, but it's a scoring that fight for Aljamain Sterling is a perfectly reasonable scorecard. Uh, I might dis, again, I might disagree, but I am not, you know, up in arms or anything over it. I I can't be based on how we have to score fights. I hate to bring this argument up, but I will for this just for the sake of comparatives. If we're scoring this on who won the fight in total, rather than round by round, we probably still have a split, but I think we split for Jan in that case, rather than splitting for Sterling. Uh, But I say that purely as a matter, and I say that not to... I actually do think scoring fights as a whole rather than round by round is a better way to score MMA fights, personally, but... Either that or we need kind of an overhaul of the criteria for the 10-point must system, but that's that's a whole can of worms. Uh, I say that just for the sake of acknowledging that depending on the criteria... I've brought this up before for other fights, but depending on the slightly different criteria, you can arrive at a different result, which is not surprising. Anyway, so those were our top two fights. Title fights, both of them quite good. Uh, Sterling and Jan was not the most exciting fight in the world, but it was, it was competitive. It was, you know, there was some drama. There was good technique from both guys. Uh, you know, 
It was not a bad fight. And, I mean, the main event was a bit too one-sided to be a great fight, but an absolute just clinic from Volkanovski. All right, uh, next up, the fight of the night, deservedly so. Going on my fight of the year contender. I don't know where it'll wind up at the when it's all said and done, but... Uh, Hamzat Shemaev defeats Gilbert Burns via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. I... I need a caveat here. Doing it live, I was 29-28 Burns. That's somewhat marred by some uh, technical issues that were had in the third round. I'm, I was not the only one who had these kind of issues, apparently. Uh, I'm never entirely sure whether or not it's me or you know, the UFC. But uh, a couple of my friends who I was not watching physically with, but I was watching at the same time as, uh, noted that they were having you know, issues and... Uh, one of them was Andrew, who's been on the show once or twice. Uh, he was in, he's in Canada, so whatever issues they were having, they kind of they kind of showed their head here. So I cannot stand fully behind scoring the third for Burns because I might have I think I missed you know parts of it. Um, that said, first round Chimaev, Burns was very very game. Uh, the round swung heavily towards Chimaev near the end. He went southpaw and dropped Burns with a right. A really stiff jab. Uh, Well-timed. Got on top, kind of, you know, pounded out the last little bit of the round. Second round to Burns. The second round is where things kind of started breaking down a little bit. Um, Burns was able to... Uh, he clobbered Shemaev with a right hand. I mean, just... I don't know how Shemaev stayed upright. He then kind of knocked him off balance and dropped him. Uh, Burns gets the second. Third round is just a firefight, pretty much from start to finish. If you give Shemaev the third round, I am not arguing with you one iota. Um, this was a wild, wild fight. Both men got bruised up and bloodied. Both men got cut up. Both men got hurt. Um, I think one of the more interesting things that came out of this, and I don't know how much, I don't quite know how much relevance to put on this, but this was the first time we've seen someone, and I know uh, Shemaev does not train with uh, Khabib, but this is the first time we've seen someone kind of with that mentality, that style, go up against someone with really, really top-shelf jiu-jitsu. And the end result was rather interesting. Um, Shemaev was very averse to being inside the guard of Gilbert Burns. I think that was probably a smart decision on his part. Um, Burns, to his credit, uh, he brought in some guys who used the same style. I don't, I don't know who, but I know he brought some guys in. And he was very well prepared for some of the things that Shemaev does in the wrestling department. He was very good about quickly wall walking, about not letting uh, Shemaev mount the legs, about not letting him get a control position. So very good stuff there. Uh, and again, Shemaev, one of the reasons I think we can't be too... Uh, this is an interesting point in the history of, you know, what jujitsu against the kind of, you know, smash or smish. Uh, I, I'm holding off a little bit for a couple of reasons. Um, 
One is that while Shemaev obviously is a very strong wrestler for MMA, uh, he doesn't have the same grap the same overall grappling skills and credentials and whatnot that someone like an Islam Makhachev has. You know, Makhachev is not just a strong wrestler. Uh, that man is a very good all-around grappler. And while Shemaev is a strong wrestler, and he's good about finding partial control positions to land damage from, he doesn't have the kind of pedigree that, again, Makashev does or that Habib did when it comes to what they're able to do on the ground in a more pure grappling kind of uh, setting. So it is an interesting, I mean, it was always one of the things, like what happens to Khabib when he fights someone who's got a, a really killer jiu-jitsu game? We never got to see it, not really. Uh, I don't think it would have looked exactly like this, but this is, some, this is something to keep in mind. Uh, I'm going to give Gilbert Burns a ton of credit. Not only did he fight like an absolute dog, you know, he went out of his way to request this fight. There's not a lot of guys in any other division sitting number two in the rankings who would fight number 11 at all, much less say, hey, I want to fight number 11. You know, it's just real quick for the for the sake of my own amusement. Let's just go through. Okay, Kai Kara France is currently number two at the flyweight division. You think he's calling up Sean Shelby and saying, or Mick Maynard or whoever the match, whoever the matchmaker is for these guys? I know they're split. He's not calling up UFC Brass and going, I want to fight Tim Elliott. You know, TJ Dillashaw is not saying, I want to fight Frankie Edgar. Brian Ortega is not saying, I want to fight Sadiq Youssef. Uh, Dustin Poirier is not saying, I want to fight Armin Saryuki, and he is definitely not saying that. <laughs> not a knock on him. Uh, Jared Cannonier is not saying, give me Nasruddin Imavov. Yuri Prohachka is not calling out Nikita Krylov. And I'll, I'll end this at number with the heavyweights. Stipe Miocic is not banging the drum to fight Sergei Pavlovich. A very winnable fight for <laughs> Stipe, but the, you get the point. Uh, but here we have number two, Gilbert Burns, saying, yeah, Hamzat Shemaev, I want that fight. Uh, that is, and that deserves all kinds of credit that he's willing and able to do that. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Here's the other thing. Um, this is more of a technical thing. Dude, Kamzat Shemaev is strong as an ox. Gilbert Burns tried to take him down a couple of times. Now, Gilbert Burns is not the world's greatest wrestler. But he is a... He does have good takedowns. He went 0 for 5. I mean... And he had a couple that had good starts. Like he started pretty solid. And then Shemaev with a bit of technique and just strength stopped him cold. The size disparity was very apparent here. One of the other things I wanted to mention. Um, Shemaev a lot bigger. Now, this did not... This is not going to put Shemaev into a position to argue for the next title shot, I don't think. 
Um, the UFC, Dana White, after the fact, had or this week had mentioned, you know, we're looking at trying to make Shamaya versus Colby Covington. I don't hate that fight. That's going to be an odd one if they make it. For the following reasons. One, we saw Shamayev fade here. Now, some of that was just how each... These two fought at a crazy pace. And Shamayev's technique, especially striking, kind of broke down. And one of the benefits of proper technique is that it conserves energy, doing things in the most efficient way possible, rather than what feels right, necessarily. It's a weird biomechanical thing that your arm... When you throw a jab, right? Mechanically speaking, and efficiency-wise in some respects, straight out, straight back. That's what you're taught, that's what you're drilled. Straight out, straight back, straight out, straight back. What happens when people start doing it? They start... And I mean once they actually kind of... You know, obviously not like day one guys, but even very, very good fighters, even professional fighters, what do they do with it? They wind it up before they throw it because it's generating a little bit of momentum. It feels stronger. And what happens after it lands? It does not come straight back. It dips and comes back. That's technically more... This is a pure physics construct, mind you. It is more efficient physics-wise to use the momentum and the energy that you have started going forward rather than stopping it and reversing. It's easier, in some respects, to go out and then let it circle back. That said, it does take a bit more energy overall. And you have the downside of doing it that way and leaving your head exposed. Now, again, you see professionals do this all the time. Because it, once you get a little bit tired, you, your te- some of your technique breaks down a little bit. Which, when, depending on the specific stuff we're talking about, can actually exacerbate your tiredness. You swing an overhand right, it is more effort to swing it than to throw it straight. Uh, so Shemaev's technique broke down a little bit. His cardio faded a little bit. His defense turns out um, it's not terrible, but it's not other. It's not great. Now, if you think I'm being too hard on the guy, these are these are just kind of my notes for the. This is the first time we've seen him in anything like this. The dude had been hit twice in his entire UFC career before this entire UFC career. He is hit twice. In this fight, he gets hit a total of 120 some odd times. So, <laughs> uh, and he took a big step up in comp- in class, right? Like, Legion Leong is a good fighter. I'm not trying to disparage that man at all. But, there is a lot of difference between Li Jing Leong and Gilbert Burns, and that was very, very apparent. Shemaev's also very young, so these are, and there are some things that you only learn after you go, after you get the experience. It doesn't matter how much your coach tells you. It doesn't matter how much you train. There's just a difference when it's real, and there are some things that you only learn this way. So hopefully he will take the correct lessons and continue moving forward. Uh, 
I, I mentioned, I don't think he's next for a title shot. Um, but if he fights Colby, it'll be interesting. Because Colby pushes a murderous pace. If those two fight, first of all, it's going to be five rounds. Uh, I don't know if it will be... Uh, I don't know. It'll be a five-round fight. It will have to be a five-round fight given what they're trying to set up coming off of it. it. That's the only way that works. So we're going to have to see, you know, Shemaev potentially over five rounds. Colby has a great chin. This doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to Covington, but that dude can take a punch. I mean, he took a lot of blows from Com- uh, from Kamaru Usman, uh, some of which would have sat down a lot of other people. That punch that Masvidal landed on him in the fourth round, I think it was, of their fight. You know how many people are sleeping after Masvidal lands that punch? Uh, not Covington. So, there's that. There's all. Um, there's also the style in which Covington wrestles. Uh, I'll be very interested to see how Shemaev deals with that on the because he stopped Burns here again every time. Uh, Covington wrestles differently, and that would be an interesting thing to see play out. So, uh, here's the thing about Shemaev. The last uh, last thing I'm going to say about him, I think, on this this performance did not show that he's ready to fight for the belt right now or next. Uh, I think I think if he were to fight Kamaru Usman next, that would go poorly for him. I'm not saying he couldn't win, but he would be he would be dealing with a uh, an uphill battle pretty much everywhere. But if you look at this performance and what he has done throughout the rest of his UFC run, uh, he is probably going to be champion in the next two years, give or take. The guy in his 11th professional fight fought the number two contender. And, yeah, was pushed like he had never been pushed before. But won. You know, he show, we got the gut check from him that I kind of wanted to see. He'd been a freight train thus far. You know, what's he do when he's not? What do you do when someone puts it on you? Because someone will. Turns out he responded pretty darn good. So, again, next champ, you know, next champion. I don't know. Maybe Usman does hold it for another couple of years, and we're having this discussion in 2024, or really late 2023. You give Kamzat Shemaev another year, eighteen, another eighteen months to two years of development. Look, if they were to fight tomorrow, I'd pick Usman. Two years from now, Usman being two years older, Kamzat being two years, you know, older and better. Tell me that's not a Shemaev. Tell me that's not a situation wherein you would favor Shemaev. Evidence as it currently stands, obviously. Uh, credit to Burns, who, despite the... Lo- I hate... 
I'm very rarely one of the guys who says that, you know, someone's stock can rise in a loss. It can. I just don't like, I don't like discussing it in those terms because I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a cliche. One of the few times I think that uh, he probably will not suffer uh, for having the for having the loss here because he gave the guy a tough tough fight. And you, you turn in one of the fights of the year, your stock tends to rise, usually whether you win or lose. You'd rather win, obviously, but it it never hurts. So, uh, I don't know who he fights next, but you know, serious credit to him for seeking out this fight and for turning in the performance that he did. A lot of people would have crumbled, and he didn't, so credit to him. All right, the rest of these should be a bit quicker. <laughs> uh, Mackenzie Duran defeats Tisha Torres via split decision, 29-28. Um, 29-28 for either woman is perfectly defensible. Um, I think the first round is the swing round on this one. I can't remember if it was the first or third that I thought was the swing. Um, the only really, the only truly dominant round is the second, where Dern... Jumps standing guard, uses a uh, uses a Kimura attack to force Torres down. Transitions that into a, sort of an armbar, but Torres defends that. She st- gets stuck kind of looking for a... Uh, kind of sweep, is it? Oh, uh, there's too many different sweeps. Uh, I think I heard it referred to as a flower sweep. Again, whether that's just different nomenclature depending on who's teaching you, I couldn't tell you. Uh, winds up inverting for a leg lock. Can't qu- uh, the knee bar gets pretty close. Torres is able to defend that enough, and then uh, Dern goes for a toe hold. Like the the second round is a great great uh, performance from Dern. I think the third round went to. I have to look at which round was the swing round on the official scorecards. Um, thanks. Let me do that real fast. Yeah, the first round was officially the swing round. Okay. Which was kind of my thought doing it live. I just wanted to confirm that. Um, third round for Torres, not terribly controversial there. First round, I gave it to Torres live, and Torres has a really good first two minutes. She is moving well. She's darting. She's intercepting Dern because Dern's always attacking on a straight line. There's a lot that's really good about the first half or so of that round for Tisha Torres. I mean, great stuff. The second half is where things fall apart for her a little bit. Her movement isn't quite as on point as it used to be. And she starts getting hit by Dern a bit more often. And that entire first round, Dern's just coming forward the whole time. Uh, So if you wanted to, again, you could give that first round to either of them. If all you do is, like, watch the first two minutes, there's no argument that it should be Torres. When you take the round in totality, uh, it's a little bit less clear. Um, 29-28 for either woman is perfectly, perfectly defensible. I'm not up in arms over that. Either way, good win for um, 
pretty good win for Mackenzie Dern, all things considered. So, uh, I don't know. After the fight, she said she would like to fight either the winner of Yuan Yanjacek and Zhang Weili too. Maybe the loser of Esparza versus Ro, uh, Ro, Rosnami Yunus and Carla Esparza. Or the, um, the other fight she mentioned. The winner of... One of these upcoming fights, I think. Quick look. I don't think it was Lemos and Andrade. Uh, forgive me, I forget who it was. She had a, she had like three different possibilities, uh, all of which I think are perfectly legitimate. So, uh, yeah, not a bad fight. Uh, kicking off the main card, Mark Madsen defeated Vince Pichel via unanimous decision. Two 30-27s, one 29-28. The 30-27s a little bit, a little bit iffy. Um, Pichel should have had that second round, I think it was. Uh, yeah. Look, I don't object to Madsen winning. Uh, he clearly won the first and third. I don't think he won the second. Just my two cents on that. Um, not a bad fight. Uh, Madsen's cardio held up a lot better than uh, it had before. So, definitely an improvement there. Uh, had some rough periods in the striking. When the strikes start, re when the strikes really start flowing, is when he kind of locks up a little bit. Pichel had a serious combination that he unloaded in the second round. Uh, so something to work on. You know, the reaction to getting hit. Uh, one of the things about Sterling actually, and when he fought Jan, uh, when Jan would land, Sterling reacted badly. Uh, I don't know if that was just a thing for this camp or, or in that moment or what, but Sterling's, uh, he does not have a history of reacting well to firefights. Now, he fights in a way that kind of minimizes that, but it is, it's definitely something to pay attention to. Uh, that's not, it wasn't a bad fight, but it's okay. As for the prelims. Ian Gary defeated Darian Weeks for unanimous decision, 230-27s and a 29-28. Um, commentary was hilariously in the bag for Gary here. Um, the 30-27s for Gary are bad scorecards. Bare minimum, Weeks should have had the first. You, you want to argue Gary the second and third? I'm, I'm uh, sympathetic to the argument. He scored it for Weeks doing it live, which, again, I'm not sure I'd completely stand behind that. Um... Not great stuff out of Gary. Uh, Anthony Hernandez defeated Josh Frem to be unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Again, the 30-27s a little bit... Uh, I think Frem had... I forget which round I gave him. There was one of them that I thought he won. Uh, Hernandez, a little, bit, uh, a little bit overly committed to working out of the assassin position. Uh, which is... It's a variation of a... It's Ben Askren calls it the assassin. Uh, he, it's a folk-style ride. And in MMA, in, in folk-style wrestling, it's very good because you can use the position to roll someone from what in Jiu-Jitsu would be the turtle to their back and pin them. If you're in MMA, it's okay for rolling them over, but it's better for setting up the seated arm triangle, 
which is what I call that. It's a guillotine, but the arm with the arm in, but instead of the arm being across the body, it's on the same side as the head that's trapped. So you get the same kind of arm triangle compression just from this from the guillotine uh, front headlock. John Danher calls it the seated arm triangle for the sake of ease. That's what I refer to it as. But you can set up that. You can set up an anaconda choke from there very nicely. Uh, he's a lit and look, man. You tap Adolfo Vieja with something out of that sequence, you are justified in living and dying by it. Uh, One million percent. But uh, Fremd was well-schooled in that position, and he had an answer for it every time. So, good for him. The pace got to Fremd first, and then it started getting to Hernandez. Better striker was Fremd, but his overall grappling was just not quite ready for what Hernandez was bringing to him. Uh, good win for Hernandez. Uh, Raquel Pennington defeated Aspen Ladd via unanimous decision, 29-28s across the board. Um, Ladd and her corner looked surprised after this. I don't know why they were. Uh, fight kind of sucked. Mike Mallott defeated, uh, or Mallett, I think he prefers Mallett, defeated Mickey Gall via TKO, 341 of the first. A lot of decisions last night. Um, Gall gets a little bit aggressive coming in on a shifting punch. He shifts into southpaw. Doesn't quite mind his new defensive responsibilities, and Mallet just face plants him with a left hook. Uh, solid performance out of Mallet. Yeah, and to Gall's credit, he fought well for a big chunk of this. I, I said this before, uh, I think last week in particular, him getting into the UFC as early as he did I'm sure it's more beneficial to him financially, but if we're talking skills-wise, yeah, that did not do him any favors. And on the early prelims, Alexi Olenek gets career win number 60 via scarf hold, chest compressor, slash neck crank over Jared Vandera, uh, 339 of the first. Typical Alexi Olenek fight. If you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all, but you know they're fun enough. Olenek is one of the few guys who really knows how to use the Kesagatami position. Um, the, the the compressor, uh, the scarf hold, uh, the neck crank in particular. Um, you don't see it submit a lot of lighter guys. Um, and I'm not sure if this is a chicken or an egg thing. Whether people at, say, lightweight, I'm going to say lightweight for example, where the people at lightweight don't use it because they know they won't get a tap with it, or if they just kind of think they won't, so they don't even attempt it, and you just get this weird kind of circular logic. Uh, you don't see it work outside of heavyweight all that often. And you just see it some in... Uh, there are some women's fights. Uh... Uh, this is not to diminish anyone doing it at heavyweight or whatnot. If you have you work within the physical realities of your opponent. If your opponent's a heavier guy and you can compress things and get them to tap out, do it. You know, why do Americanas work on heavyweights when they don't work on lighter weight guys? There's just more material there. Things are a little bit less flexible. So the certain locks work better. That's that doesn't mean that the heavyweights suck necessarily. 
Uh, it, it just means you know, we're dealing with physical realities. So, um, that said, it is a very heavyweight move. <laughs> but the, the point there is Olenek is one of the few guys who knows how to use the, the Scarfold position to his advantage. And it's a good position. A, a lot of judo guys are very good at it. Because you can pin in judo. It's a 10 count instead of a 3 count, but you can pin, and that's a good place to pin from. Uh, catch wrestlers will use this position a lot. That's why Josh, Josh Barnett loves it. And that's what he tapped out Dean Lister with, was uh, uh, the same hold. So, it, it's, a good found, it's a good position that I think gets overlooked a lot in contemporary MMA. Uh, I, don't, I'm not, I don't think Alexi Olenek is going to be the catalyst for a renaissance of the Kisigatami. But it, it is something that I think more guys should give, uh, give a look to if you want to find a, a platform to work out from. It's not the worst. Um, Piero Rodriguez, who is from Venezuela, so I apologize for mispronouncing her name last week, defeated Kay Hansen via unanimous decision, 29-28. Um, I don't have anything to say there. Hansen missed weight, not good, then lost, even worse. Uh, and kicking everything off, Julio Arce defeated Daniel Santos via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Uh, Arce missed weight. He weighed 165 and a half, so half a pound over the non-title allowance. Um, minor calibration issue could have been all that was. Uh, if you looked at his weigh-in, he's sometimes when you watch a guy weigh in, you kind of go, eh, did you really try? Uh, Arce looked like he gave that every effort. So I... I'm not a fan of guys missing weight. This is the first time he's ever done so. And as I've mentioned, given the chaos of the universe, everyone kind of gets one. But better have that dialed in next time. That said, he looked great. Uh, he fought really well. A lot of movement, sniping at distance, solid calf kicks. Santos plodded forward and just kind of got chewed up. Uh, I, I, I even somewhat dis, I disagree with the guy who gave Santos a round. Like, this was really good stuff from Arce, so kudos to him. All right, your bonuses, your fight of the night. I mentioned it already. Gilbert Burns and Kamzat Shemaev, million percent deserved. Performances of the night went to Alexander Volkanovsky and Alexei Olenek. Can't really argue with that. You only had one other finish. Um... <laughs> And the UFC tends to reserve their performances for finishes. Not always, but tends to. Um, so, yeah, no objection to any of that. Yeah, Volkanovsky, man. Looks like a million bucks. Uh, this was the first time we got the new crypto bonus. <laughs> God. Okay. Uh, a couple of things. One, Dana White at the post-fight presser said, I'm going to give Gilbert Burns his... Uh, Going to give Gilbert Burns his uh, win bonus. <laughs> you could do that every time, and uh, the only thing stopping them from doing that is greed. And bear in mind, I'm, if you ask me about my economic philosophies, I'm a capitalist. I am. I don't object to. Uh, so uh, I say that just to say if even me, who, again, I'm, I'm kind of yay capitalism, all things considered. Is sitting here going, you know, you're being a bit greedy. 
I mean, what was the dividend pay? I think there was like a bonus or a, uh, they did like, I can't remember if it was bonuses or just their dividend payouts or something along those lines. Forgive me. But uh, Ari Emanuel, who owns Endeavor, uh, which again owns the UFC, uh, was given like a $300 million bonus. Again, it's either a bonus or it's something to that effect. Um, just so everyone understands, that's more than the UFC paid its fighters in total for the last like three to five years combined. And I'm not, a, let me be clear about something. I'm not objecting to that man making a lot of money for owning a very success, for owning a company that is that is successful. When you're getting that kind of disparity, though, is when like, this is, you're fomenting resentment and all you're doing is making your own life more difficult. I, I just my takeaway. Anyway. That is to lead into our new, for pay-per-view at least, set of bonuses. Uh, Crypto.com, which does not pay the fighters anything. The UFC, the fighters see not a red cent of their logo being plastered across the chest of their fight kits, for the record. And Crypto is paying a fair amount of money to be there. Fighters? Nope. Um, they're ha they have a new thing now where... Uh, during the event or immediately after it, viewers can vote up to three times uh, per pay-per-view on bonuses. And at the end, and the three winners of this popularity contest get bonuses paid in Bitcoin, um, ranging in uh, the. So, when I say how much they win. Uh, this is, again, however much of Bitcoin you could buy for that in U.S. dollars. At whatever the current market rate for it is. Crypto, man. Don't get me. I'm going to say this very... I'm going to say this once. This is all I'm going to say about cryptocurrency at the moment. It's not a currency. You can't buy anything with it. I cannot take whatever coin, whatever stupid name you want to attach to it, Use it to fill up my car. All you got, all crypto is at the moment is a wildly unregulated securities market. That's all it is. That's all I'm saying on it. Moving on. So, again, whoever wins this popularity contest, there's first, second, and third places. They are paid 30,000, 20,000, and 10,000 respectively. So, and this also only applies to pay-per-view. So if you're a popular enough fighter and happen to be featured on pay-per-view, um, only for pay-per-view cards, let, let, me, let me specify this. Pay-per-view events. You do not have to be on the pay-per-view portion of the card to win. Anyone from the preliminary card is eligible to be voted on. Um, you'd have to do something pretty special on the prelims, I think, to make a dent. But... That does need to be acknowledged. It is not only on the main people. It is not only eligible to people on the main card of the pay-per-view, but you do have to be on a pay-per-view event. The next couple of weeks are again fight nights. There will be no Crypto.com fan bonuses. But your winners for this one, predictably, first place Kamzat Shemaev, second place Alexander Volkanovsky, third place Piotr Jan. So 
they are those three gentlemen were paid uh, respectively in Bitcoin thirty thousand, twenty thousand, and ten thousand dollars. Don't know what they want to do with that, if anything, but they've got it. So that was UFC 273. I would like to thank very much any and all of you that followed along with my live coverage. Uh, any and all of you that read the report, the report after the fact. Uh, that's all available in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com right now. You can go read that to get my round-by-round -round scoring and clips of the finishes, such as they were. Okay, moving on. This coming week, again, thank you again. UFC, this coming week, UFC on ESPN plus 64. Uh, we got a card. I don't think we have a full bout order yet, so I apologize. Some of these are not in order. Main event, a rematch between Vicente Luque and Bilal Muhammad. These two fought long ago um they fought back in 2016 i believe it was muhammad's ufc debut or his second fight third so it was his third fight in the ufc and luke knocked Bilal muhammad out in a minute and 20 seconds <laughs> it is to date the only stoppage loss of muhammad's career uh so there's that. Luque is on a great run. I mean, I've said this before about Vicente Luque. That man does not get the respect he deserves. I mean, his only, he had one setback in his UFC debut to a guy no longer with the promotion. Since then, he lost to Leon Edwards, fighting for the belt, and Stephen Thompson fought for the belt twice. And arguably should have won the second one, my opinion. Uh, he's currently on a four-fight winning streak. He's finished all of them. That's Nico Price, Randy Brown, Tyron Woodley, and Michael Chiesa. I mean, he's on a roll. Then you've got Muhammad, who is also on a roll. Muhammad hasn't lost since he fought Jeff Neal in 2019. Since then, he's beaten Curtis Millinder, Takashi Sato, Lyman Good, Diego Lima. The no contest with Leon Edwards beat Damian Maya and most recently beat Stephen Thompson. So if you wish to play MMA math, we should pick Bilal Muhammad here, except he's already lost to the guy he's fighting, so MMA math goes out the window, because MMA, MMA math is kind of a joke. Um, I am, I'm looking forward to this fight, believe it or not. This is a good fight. It was a good fight the first time they made it when they were both younger prospects. Now they're both contenders. Uh, really good fight. Over five rounds is kind of the big consideration here for me. Luke is a bit more of a finish threat. Um, Luke is a bit more well-rounded. Muhammad's a better wrestler. Uh, I'm going to lean towards Luke just a little bit. Uh, could be very wrong about that. If, if Luke decides to brawl with Muhammad, that will go badly. Luke's boxing is not very good. His overall striking is good. I mean, I really wish to clarify this. Luque's overall level of striking is pretty good. When he gets just into boxing, it's not quite the level of the rest of his stuff. So if Muhammad can kind of induce a lot of punching exchanges, that will be to Muhammad's credit. And I think that will play well for him. I expect Muhammad to try and grind this out. That's what he usually does. I mean, before the eye poke, when he fought uh, Leon Edwards, people forget this. Leon Edwards beat the crap out of Bilal Muhammad for that first round. 
I mean, that was not terribly close. Now, Leon Edwards is very good, and obviously Muhammad has rebounded since then, but uh, that that gets forgotten because of the eye poke. Uh, but that, that fight up until then was not terribly competitive. So... I'm gonna I said I'm gonna lean towards Luke, but that one this is a good fight could go either way. All right, everything else about this I'm not sure the bout order listed here is correct, so if it's not I apologize. Going by what they've released. Uh, we have a featherweight fight between Pat Sabatini and T.J. Laramie. Um, I don't have a lot of hesitation picking Sabatini here. Laramie had a pretty good UFC debut, but. Sabatini is a smothering guy. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, Elize Zalescu dos Santos against Munir Lazez. Um, Lazez is a really good striker. Uh, dos Santos will be better all around. Um, I mean, Dos Santos has had some really good wins, had some really good runs in the UFC. Um... I just, I think he's on. I think he he is past his peak. I might be wrong, but I, that's my hunch. So I'm going to, I'm still going to lean towards him. I think his overall game will wind up being a bit much for Lazez to deal with, but be on the lookout for this one. Uh, Dos Santos is he's kind of been teetering on that precipice for his last couple of fights. Uh, Marina Bueno Silva against Wu Yanan. Have a quick look at this. Um, yeah, she's on a rough stretch. I mean, she's only got one win in the UFC. Uh, lost her bantamweight. Who returned to bantamweight uh, about a year, a little over a year ago. Uh, Silva, on the other hand, I mean, this is kind of win or go home for both of these ladies. Uh, Silva only has one win in the UFC. She kind of... I'm going to lean towards Silva, I suppose. I mean, kind of flip a coin here. Now, that's all we have listed for the main card. I'm going to make a couple of assumptions about the list, the fights that don't have a specific order yet. I'm going to assume that William Knight and Devin Clark is going to be somewhere on the main card because it's a heavyweight fight and there's already a heavyweight fight on the prelims and we must make everyone who watches both halves of these things suffer. Um, Clark... lost his last two. This is Clark's heavyweight debut. Rather, his return to it. No, this is his heavyweight debut. I think it was light heavyweight. Had a middleweight fight and then came back up to light heavyweight. I believe it's William Knight's heavyweight debut as well. Uh, his, it's, this is his return to heavyweight. He's not fought at heavyweight in the UFC, apart from when he missed weight horribly <laughs> for his last fight, when he fought Maxim Grishin. Remember that? He weighed 218 pounds. The single biggest weight miss in UFC history. <laughs> so he's up at heavyweight now. Which is a fair... You miss weight by... What? 13 pounds? 
You're missing weight by more than the weight of a newborn human child. Yeah, move up. <laughs> oh, man. I assume that's going to be on the main card. Uh, I'm going to pick... I'm going to pick Clark. Uh, I, I don't care. Uh, I'm also going to assume that Miguel Baeza and Andre Fialho will be on the main card. Uh, you know what? I, I feel okay assuming Knight and Clark. Let me go to the prelims, and then I'll read the stuff that doesn't have a bout order, and we'll, we'll do it that way. So, prelims, lightweight uh, Rafa Garcia and Jesse Ronson. It's not the worst fight in the world. Um... Probably lean towards Ronson. How did that go? Ronson's been out for a while. He had a failed drug test. I'm going to go with Ronson, but yeah. Uh, heavyweight Chris Barnett and Martin uh, Bidet. Go with Beast Boy. Why not? Maybe he'll throw another wheel kick and knock somebody out with it. I can't believe he hit that, man. More annoyed that his spinning heel kick is better than mine. But <laughs> that's because my hips are messed up more, more than anything. And I'm probably lazier than he is. Um, is women's strawweight, Estella Nunes and Sam Hughes. He's kind of in need of a win. Badly in need of a win. She's not won in the UFC yet. Um... Look up Ms. Nunez real fast. Tell someone's 0-3 in the UFC. I have to double-check their opponent. Now, what do we have here? Uh, is this not listed here? There you are. She is 6-2. and two. Oh, she had a UFC. Yeah, she lost to Ari Ariane Carnalose. I vaguely remember that fight. God. I'm going to pick Hughes, and I'm just prepared to be very, very wrong. And a bantamweight fight between uh, Alatong Hele. Hele Alatong. I think it's Alatong Hele. He's from that. He's like from Tibet, and they have weird naming conventions. I don't mean that in a xenophobic way. I mean, it's a little bit weird. Oh, is he from Mongolia? Where the heck is he from? I mean, he, rep he represents China, officially. But, depending on which part of China, China being a very large country. What's wrong Zhu fights out of Tibet? I don't know. Anyway. Um, so, Alatong is coming off of a draw... That he did to himself after he got a point deducted because he wouldn't stop grabbing the fence. Kroom uh, has had a rough go of it in the UFC. Uh, no contest with Roosevelt Roberts. Then he lost to Alex Caceres and Brian Kelleher. I mean, these guys are both capable UFC caliber fighters. I'm, I'm going to lean towards Kroom, believe it or not. I think Hele is going to struggle with his wrestling. Just a thought. All right, again, as for the stuff that's announced, but we don't really have a bout order. 
Um, Drakkar Close and Brandon Jenkins. Pretty okay picking Close. I mentioned this already. Uh, Miguel Baeza and Andre Fialho. Um, Fialho... Um, he had lost his UFC debut. He stepped in on somewhat short notice to fight Michelle Pereja, but he acquitted himself very well in that fight. I was I was impressed. Uh, and Baeza... Uh, for a guy that, you know... Two years ago, looked to be the next big thing. Uh, he really needs to get it together. He took a step up in competition to fight Santiago Ponzinibbio and did well in the first round and then lost the next two. Did pretty good against Chaos Williams for a while before he got caught in the third round. Um, he's got a lot of ability, but you got the pieces all have to fit together, and I don't think they quite do for him yet. Um, this is a tougher pick than I thought. I'm going to pick Fialho and just kind of hope I'm wrong, because I think Baez still has a lot of upside. Uh, middleweight, Kyle Baraljo and Godzi, uh, oof, Omar Godziev? Omar, Go Omar Godziev? I'm just going to mispronounce that guy's name no matter what I try until I see it, until I hear someone else do it. Um, Boraljo is making his debut, I believe. Yes. Had a couple of wins on the Contender Series to get here. Um, on a good winning streak, actually. His, uh, he had a no contest in 18. Other than that, his only loss was in 2015. Uh, and uh, Omar Godziev. He's undefeated, 13-0. and 0. Also has a win on the Contender Series. Uh, I think you all know my kind of joking rule of thumb at this point. I pick Russians to beat Brazilians. <laughs> um, in all honesty, I don't know enough about either guy to make an informed prediction. So that's kind of my, that's one of my amusing personal breakpoints. If I don't have, if I don't have actual evidence one way or the other. Um, I don't know what the I don't know what my lifetime average is on that when that's been my deciding factor or not. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, women's bantamweight. Let's see, Lena Landsberg and Panny Kianzad. Oof, that's probably not going to be good. Mm, probably I don't know. Lean towards Kian. Flip a coin. I genuinely don't know. They're both just kind of. They both just kind of take up space. Uh, Landsberg coming off of a loss to Sarah McMahon. Landsberg's been with the UFC since 2016, and in that time has amassed a what four and four? Yeah, she's four and four. Um, whereas Kian Zod lost to Raquel Pennington. In her last fight, she's four and two overall in the UFC. Yeah, sure, Kianzad. And Jordan Levitt versus Trey Ogden. Jordan Levitt has some abilities, uh, but boy, is he! He's a bit gimmicky, uh, and he's not really—he doesn't really flow as a fighter, right? I mean, he got a really nice inverted triangle choke in his last 
fight. The first it, the first straight inverted triangle choke to win a fight. Uh, put Matt Sale to sleep with it. But there's there's a lot of refinement that needs to go on with him, and that's not the worst thing in the world. He's only 26. Uh, so and he fights out of a good camp. He's out. He's with Syndicate at the moment, I think. They're a very very you know. Uh, <laughs> they're a solid camp, you know. So. That. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick him here, but he's also kind of shown maybe a little again. Just there's a lot of reasons you might be willing to pick against him and his opponent. Quick look at Mr. Ogden. He is 15 and four, more experienced. Um. A three-fight winning streak. And again, if you want to pick against Levitt, I can easily understand why you would be inclined to do so. so. But that's the card as it stands. Again, there's a bunch of those that have to get in the official bout order. I will be covering it this Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So if you are so inclined, please do stop by and say hello. I always appreciate all the support that you're able to give me that way. Thank you very, very much. All right. Uh, as far as news goes, some fights have kind of been announced slash moved around. The big one, uh, the UFC announced they're targeting for UFC 275, the rematch of maybe the best women's MMA fight ever. I think it is. Ioana Jacek and Zhang Weili 2. Uh, and UFC 275 currently scheduled for June 11th to take place in the uh, in Kalong, Singapore. They are moving to the back door of one championship, even though I'm fairly sure they don't know who that is. Um, look, let me just for the record read off the fights we have at the moment uh, expected or whatnot for that card. Glover Teixeira and Yuri Prochka, Valentina Shevchenko versus Tyler Santos. And Robert Whitaker versus Marvin Vittori. You toss in Joanna Zhang too. Please make that five rounds, by the way. Just throwing it out there, please. Um, you throw that in to cap off again Whitaker and Vittori. You might need one other fight for the main card. Um, I mean, you could throw pretty much anything. I don't think it matters what you put as the other fight on the main card on that. At that point, like that's a really good card. Uh, Teixeira and Prochka is that's gonna be crazy. I mean, Yuri Prochka can only be in crazy fights, but Glover's not adverse to bring in the crazy. Uh, Valentina and Tyler Santos is. More competitive than people are going to give it credit for because we're just used to Valentina bulldozing everyone. And to be abundantly clear, I favor her quite heavily. But I think Santos is maybe her most capable challenger in a while. To double, let, me, let me double check that. She fought recently. She's better than Lauren Murphy. I would argue better than Jennifer Maya. Um, okay, Andrade, okay, not Andrade. Jessica Andrade, better. Chukagian, eh, Chukagian's got a good, 
Chukagian has a very good overall, like, winning track record, but she's... I mean, that fight went the way it went for a reason. Uh, point being, I I think Santos is probably going to be overlooked. Uh, and uh, she's better than that. Uh, still favor Shevchenko walking away in a lot of respects. If, if we're talking about my predictions. But... Uh, Santos is, she is going to be poised to overperform relative to expectations. And then, and Whitaker and Vittori, I mean, that's a good fight. It's just a good fight. So, yeah, 275 is shaping up nicely. Uh, see, do we have anything else? 274 has been, um, I don't think I talked about this a lot before, but uh, for UFC 274... Uh, we currently have two title fights, the, um, I mean, Gaethje and Oliveira. Yes. The rematch between Rose Namunas and Carlos Barza. I'm not objecting. Lightweight fight was added to that. Michael Chandler and Tony Ferguson. This was added a little bit ago, but I didn't talk about it when it was announced. Um, it's a great fight. Uh, yeah, Donald Cerrone and Joe Lozon's on that card. So 274 is coming up soon, and that's a really good card. Um, was there any others that we had kind of finalized here? The upcoming, the Font and Vera card. I mean, that's, that's a good fight. Uh, Rob Font and Marlon Vera is a good fight. So that card's a little bit lackluster, but... Um, oh, that, that, had a, that had a change. Um, Justin Toffa was supposed to fight Jake Collier, and uh, Toffa fell out, now we get... Jake Collier versus Andre Arlovsky. <laughs> I I can't help but laugh, man. I have to laugh. I just have to laugh. Uh, everything after May 7th at the moment is a little bit TBD. So like Fight Night 209. Um, I know they... We've got some announced bouts. Uh, I think the main event's going to be Jan Blahovic and Alexander Rakic. Fine enough light heavyweight fight. Um... Some decent enough fights there, actually, now that I look at it. Uh, we just don't have a venue. I assume the Apex. Uh, I think the same thing for the card on the 21st. Yeah, we don't have a, a main event for that. I think they had penciled in the fight between Alexander Gustafson and Ben Rothwell, then Rothwell got cut. And Gustafson lobbied for Ovin St. Prue, despite Ovin St. Prue fighting Mauricio Shogun Hua at UFC 274. I mean, that's a rematch nobody wants, but... So, the, again, there's a few that still need to be fleshed out, but we've seen some of the... The 275 card got a little bit little bit more stacked. Uh, okay, that is the news that I have at the moment. So, I'm going to check Twitter and Facebook for questions or breaking news, and if there's nothing, we will go into plugs and get out of here. All right, nope. So, let's get into plugs. My usual spate of professional wrestling coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday... MLW's whatever they're releasing on Thursday, and WWE SmackDown on Friday. The post-WrestleMania slump is real. We're only one week out, but yeesh. AEW didn't exactly have a great event. MLW didn't have a great... And this was taped. And then SmackDown was... Yeesh. Not very good. Not so good. And, of course, my report for UFC 273 is up, if you're interested. 
and coverage for the UFC event this Saturday. I will also be, uh, last week there was also a Damn You Hollywood, which is my movie review podcast over on the W2M network, where we discussed Morbius. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not a good, sh- not a good movie. Not a good movie. Uh, tune in to listen to myself, Mark Radlich, and Pat Mullen talk about all the things we, all the issues we had with it. Uh, this week will be a review for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. That's going to be myself, Mark, and Alexis. Look. Yes. That's me, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Haina. We'll be talking Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I enjoyed the first Sonic the Hedgehog movie, so sue me. So I'm kind of looking forward to this one. Uh... The week after that will be the Damn You Hollywood for Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. That is a... That is a spin-off IP that has lost its way in a big way. Um, actually, I didn't hate the first Fantastic Beasts movie, but The Crimes of Grindelwald was a crime against cinema. And I'm hoping Mads Mikkelsen is awesome, because I love Mads Mikkelsen. Then Damn You Hollywood will round out the month of April with The Northmen on the 26th. So if you're interested in my thoughts in movies, please give Damn You Hollywood a listen. Wherever you're listening to this, you can type Damn You Hollywood into your search engine and I'm sure you'll find me. All right. Thank you all very, very much again for your continued support, for your listening, for sharing the show with your friends if you think they're interested in it. So I appreciate you guys a whole lot. Until next time. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.